Nerd Warriors podcast. I'm Max. I'm Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, we are going to be covering Weird War Tales number 24. But first, Rich has a little retroactive history for you. Indeed. May the fourth be with you, dear listeners. I neglected to give credit where credit is due when promoting 68 last time. They are all written by creator Mark Kidwell, and art is done variously by Nat Jones, Tim Vigil, Jeff Zornow, and Kyle Charles. So, sorry about that. Intel Report, The Life Eaters, script by David Brin, art by Scott Hampton. A 148-page hardcover graphic novel released in 2004 by Wildstorm Publishing. In 1944, Adolf Hitler summons the Norse gods to join the German cause. D-Day is a disaster, and the war quickly ends in Allied defeat. In 1962, Loki teams up with a small group of Allied servicemen in a last-ditch effort to defeat the Norse gods. But the gods of India... Asia and Africa soon join the fray. No matter who wins, humanity will lose. Oh, that sounds like an uplifting series. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and again, Loki uh, makes, you know, pops his head up, of course. But, you know, it sounds like 2004, he was just ahead of that Loki popularity thing that's hey, going on these days. By about a decade, you know, when did, when did Thor drops? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So before we dig into the issue that we're going to be looking at this episode. We're going to take a break to uh, advertise another fine podcast. And when that promo is done, we'll be right back. Hi, I'm one of the high priests of Conchu Ray, and I have the sacred privilege of providing you, the loony listener, with a podcast honouring Marvel's very own Moon Knight. So join me and a host of others at Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or support the show by becoming a Patreon member. Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. It's time to get your conchu on. And we are back. Back, so we're going to take a look at Weird War Tales number 24, and as is SOP here on the show, Rich is going to hit you with the cover details. Art by who else? Luis Dominguez. The 20-cent mystery and madness of Weird War Tales shines out at you from the top third of the cover with a fuchsia on black color scheme. There are two hands in the lower corners of the cover digging through rubble, which gives the reader the perspective that they are the one doing the digging. Inside the opened chamber, a robed death gestures towards you. A tattered Nazi banner hangs behind him, and there's a dead German soldier on either side. One is skeletal. Immediately in front of him, there's a bedraggled German soldier that's still alive, aiming a machine gun at his would-be rescuer. The entire scene in the chamber is colored red, suggesting blood, except for death's white skull and hands. Cover date, April 1974, on sale January 24th, 1974. Killjoy, the German appears to be crouched behind some manner of water-cooled machine gun with butterfly grips. 
I can't find anything from either side from that era that fits that criteria. No doubt a device by Dominguez because the water jacket makes the machine gun appear bigger to the viewer and draws your eye to it. Comments and combinations. I don't like the red robe death that much, but the dazed look on the machine gunner's face is haunting. How long has he been down here? It's certainly an eye-catching cover. Yeah, I agree. The choice of red for the Reaper's robes is a bit much. It makes the center of the image seem like a blob of color that all blends in together. The overall drawing is excellent, though, and it works as a cover despite that rare misstep on the coloring front, because the last several covers, the coloring has been awesome and made the cover work perfectly. This being a DC comic, even though I know it's not connected to their superhero titles, I did amuse myself for a second with the possibility of those white hands in the foreground belonging to Bizarro. It's just, they look too similar. I like it. It's effective. Again, full bleed image, no dialogue, but it hooks you and you're in. So again, I think super effective. So we're going to dive into the issue. And uh, since, you know, we don't hear from Rich that often, we're going to have him do the first full length story. And here he is. Okay. I think the reason I took this uh, this story first is because of all the German words in that you probably butcher. <laughs> Oh, that's fair. Oh, and by the way, good use of fuchsia in the cover detail. Don't want to You're let that welcome. pass. All right. <laughs> well, why why use hot pink when fuchsia fits the fits the uh, fits the groove more smoothly? Yeah, okay, and we the, give that we give that all away for free. So there you go. All right, the invisible enemy, thirteen pages, script by Jack Olek, art by Ernie Chan. It's the cover story of a draggled German lieutenant, Oberlieutenant or Oberst is in an underground supply depot surrounded by the skeletal bodies of his men and firing a machine gun at a phantom of a tiger that's lunging for him. Voices outside are astonished to hear the gunfire. There's no way anyone could still be alive down there. The Oberlutnant thinks the voices belong to Russians that have found the depot and fires at them. The voices plead with the soldier that the war was over, that they weren't Russians. But the Oberlutnant doesn't believe them and keeps firing. He finally agrees to hold his fire until he can see for himself and is overjoyed to see civilian workers peering down at him. Alive, he cries. I've won. Do you hear, Gypsy Witch? I've beaten you. He starts hysterically laughing as he's pulled into the sunlight for the first time in 10 years. Later, he quietly huddles over a fire at the construction site, drinking coffee and remembering how he came to be here. Flashback. The Oberlutnant's unit was in a Polish village, clearing it of partisans. Their helmets and tanks sport the image of a tiger's head. A beautiful red-haired woman begs him that she and her child were strangers to this village, and one of his own men confirms her story after inquiring around. But the Oberst doesn't care. He means to survive the war, and that means leaving no living enemies behind. He orders his men to kill them all. The woman spits out a curse. As you kill under the sign of a tiger, so one day a tiger will kill you. I swear it. A machine gun in his tank opens fire and guns down the poles. Curses against the might of the Third Reich. Ridiculous. And yet, there was a moment of uneasiness afterwards. The Nazi tide rolled on. Poland, Holland, Belgium, France. The Oberlutnant had a tank destroyed from under him, but he escaped and insisted that he was going to survive the war. A tiger had started stalking his dreams, however, but the Oberst lived on, leaving his mark of death on countless fields, including executing prisoners of war. The war finally turned for Germany, 
and all the advances turned into retreats. At the end, all the overlieutenant's tanks had been destroyed, and the only thing left for him was to defend a vital underground supply depot in Berlin from the oncoming Russians. Though he had orders to die in its defense, the Oberst had no intention of doing so. He meant to live, especially with the war almost over. An American air raid suddenly destroyed the depot's entrance and killed half of his men. A sergeant panicked and started frantically trying to dig out. The Oberlutnant insisted that the air vents would supply oxygen and that they had all the food and water they needed. They were safe, but the sergeant wouldn't listen. So the Oberst shot him. The rest of his men obeyed his orders for a while, but as time went by, they became convinced he was insane. They tried to kill him one night as he slept, but the Oberst bore a charmed life. In the running gunfight that followed, he killed all of his men with a well-placed grenade. And then he was alone. Alone in the dark once the generator failed. The months dragged on, and the nightmares of tigers came more frequently, even when he was awake. There was no cat, of course. He was mad. So he fought countless battles with a shadow. Until now. The workmen approached the Oberst to take him to the hospital, but they turned into tigers in his mind. He ran, screaming through the streets of Berlin being pursued by the workmen that were only trying to help. The chase ended atop a stone tower. The Oberlutnant yelled at his pursuers to stay away. Go back to the gypsy witch. I've beaten her. But as he backs away, he falls over the edge of the tower and plummets to the ground far below, landing on a concrete statue and breaking his back. The injury is mortal. The workmen are confused at the Oberst's dying whispers about curses and not being killed by a tiger after all. Because he had been. The statue he had landed on was that of a tiger. But was he also right? Because maybe what had really killed him was conscience. Killjoy and History Minute. Lots of problems with this story, so let's get started. Uh, splash page. The machine gun that the Oberlutnant is firing at the Phantom Tiger looks like a US 50 cal. It sure is in German. Just like the Blue Bolt platoon from issue 19, the tiger insignia being slathered over everything in story is a necessary but inaccurate plot device. Such markings would have been a lot more subtle in reality. We have an armband in the field sighting on page five, panel three, which is colored wrong to boot, black on red on black. I won't bother with a pick for that. On page six, I'll call it panel five, although it's divided into three segments. There's an image of American and Soviet infantrymen charging together towards the viewer. I was about to complain that that never happened during the war, but then wrote it off to it being a representation of the Allies fighting together against Germany. Love the panel, by the way. Air, land, and sea fighting against the enemy. But then, page seven, panel two, you do see Americans and Soviets fighting side by side against the Tiger tanks. Then on page eight, panel five, the American air raid is being conducted by B-25 medium bombers. Pretty sure our medium bombers never attacked Berlin, though by that stage of the war, it would have been in range. Also, the national insignia is always on the port wing only, not both, and the twin tails are too small. History Minute. The Madeira Tribune from June 18th, 1951 reads, Five companions, dead German soldier, buried alive, six years, lives. A 32-year-old German soldier who said he had been buried alive for six years in a Nazi supply depot was given a good chance by hospital authorities today to regain his health and eyesight. The six-foot German, who was not identified by authorities at Academia Hospital, this is in Warsaw, by the way, said it. he and five companions were trapped in an underground German army food and supply warehouse by retreating Nazi troops who dynamited the entrance early in 1945. 
The soldier and one other survivor of the entombment stumbled bearded, blinded, and blubbering from the bunker about a month ago when Polish workers cleared wreckage from the entrance to the depot near Gdynia. The second survivor dropped dead of shock on emerging into the daylight. The other said two of his companions committed suicide a few months after they were entombed by German troops who did not know that soldiers were in the depot. Two of the other trapped soldiers died of unknown causes, the survivor said. Air entered the tomb through an air vent undamaged by the explosion. Water trickled through cracks and the men had plenty of food. But they lived in darkness after the supply of candles was exhausted two years ago. The trapped men had no tools with which to dig their way out of the concrete bunker. They washed in brine wine and encased their dead in huge flour sacks. The bodies were almost perfectly mummified. So that's like finding that. It was just like, whoa, holy, <laughs> holy crap. See, um, I went looking for an example of something like this had ever really happened because I could have sworn I read something a few years ago about after the war, there was like a road going through where the Maginot line had been in France and they discovered French soldiers, same thing, that had been uh, entombed by the Germans in 1940 when they forgot, when they refused to surrender. I couldn't find the actual story on that, but I found this instead. But as a sad little side note, uh, the New York Times reported on June 24th, 1951, that the surviving soldier died of scurvy. You know, so six, so <laughs> this guy's underground for six years and he dies of scurvy, what, a month and a half after being rescued? Uh, there's a novelization of the incident called Entombed by Tony Matthews that was published last year by Big Sky Publishing. So if you're interested in finding a novelization of this incident, there you go. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for the Weird Worries podcast. Be sure to stop by redbubble.com. And yo, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Comments and commendations on this story from me. As usual, I didn't notice any of the Killjoy elements noted above. So I was left to just judge the story at face value like a dummy. On those terms, I will say that the in-media rest opening was almost a bit too clumsy to work for me. But once we got the bad guy out of his hole, everything smoothed right up. The crazed, unkillable self-preservationist seems to be becoming a bit of an overused trope in this series. But I ended up enjoying the story despite all that largely in part due to Ernie Chan's awesome artwork. Every panel is great, so I'll point out a uh, touch of craft that really impressed me in particular. On page six, in the midst of the expository flashback, Ernie, I assume it's just him as no letterer is credited, really plays with the panel borders and word balloons, blurring the lines between both throughout the page. Between panels one and two, the Oberleutnant's Dialogue floats between the borders, then between panels three and four, a narrative caption does the same, and at the bottom of the page, a soldier's rifle crosses the border between his panel and the next. It all really adds to the dreamlike quality of the flashback sequence, and it's the kind of creativity I like to see in a comic book page. So I'm off to a good start with, with this issue right here. I, I liked every bit of it. One thing I wanted to ask you though, Rich, before um before you sound off with your CNC, is he's called the, the bad guy here is called the Oberlutnant and the Oberst. What's the difference between those two words? Do you know? It's it's a rank, and you know, the Oberst is just a shortened version of it. You know, like in the like in the U.S. Army, you know, you got the the lieutenant, but you know, everyone uh, more casually, you know, they'll just call him the LT. It's, oh, okay. it's just like an abbreviation. You know, you, you just cut the word in half or something like that. It's more casual. All right, cool. Yeah. Speaking of the Oberst, uh, he's uh, 
is dehumanized by never being given a name in the story, which is actually a pretty nice touch. Uh, Ernie Chan does an excellent job of portraying the insane Uber Lutnant in this story. Too many panels I like, so I'll limit it to page 12, panel one, that has the vortex effect of you know, the workmen turning into tigers to the Oberst. I also really enjoy the suddenness of turning to page nine, panel one, and seeing what appears to be a German soldier being blown in half by the bombs that collapsed the depot's entrance. Yeah, a lot of cool visuals in this one. Um, it's It was really hard to narrow it down for me. So with that really good first story out of the way, we are going to hit the APO Weird War Tales letters pages and see what we find. Well, first, Buck McFerry from Washington, D.C. got the win for me when he says, Dear Joe, I've been reading and enjoying Weird War Tales for about six months now, and I've come to the conclusion that it is your best mystery mag. You really take a lot of time and trouble to make each story different. All your other titles feature old cliche stories by writers who are just hacking out the same old trash that they've been writing for years. But for Weird War, you force them to do really new ideas and stories. Part of it may be that the idea of a book combining mystery and army ideas is so new that there's nothing for these guys to swipe from. But whatever it is, the result is just terrific. Keep it up. And Joe responds, we think you hit the nail on the head with your line about Weird War being so new, it forces creativity. It certainly forces us to put our best foot forward. And when the editor tries his hardest, how can the writers and artists fail to follow? Well, hey, folks, that's why we're doing the Weird Warriors podcast, because boom. Yeah, yeah, man, I agree. I would say like his comment about like there's nothing to lift from like you seem to be finding plenty of things that they've sort of lifted from for the basis of the story. Like the first story had a precursor in history. Lord knows if they knew about it back then. But some of these things you have pulled out like the I was it the French troops that were standing up with their bayonets. Yeah, um, yeah bayonet trench, flying blind. I mean, yeah, I've been able to find a lot of stuff. Well, flying blind, they made a movie out about the same time that the story was written. So yeah, there's certainly examples out there that they could have you know, lifted this stuff out of. So it's just a matter of what newspaper they picked up or what you know vet they were talking to or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think especially when Conniger was one of the frequent writers, he was someone who would know. He was actually a student of, of war history. It was one of his personal obsessions. So that guy, I'm pretty sure was like, oh yeah, I know we could twist that and boom, we got a story. So that's cool. For my letter, I picked out something from uh, Stephen Scott from Houston, Texas, and he writes in to say, Dear Joe, what about printing weird battle albums, sort of on the order of the features that Joe Kubert and Archie Goodwin use? And Joe responds, weird battle albums, what would it feature? A pinup of the haunted tank? Seriously. Battle albums are good for ordinary war mags, but here at Weird War, we try to be even more imaginative when it comes to regular features, which is how Day After Doomsday came back from Limbo. Well, good job, Joe, because I would much rather have the battle albums back. You know, like, it's it's not like you can't find something cool to put in. It is Weird War. You can do both. I would love to see the return of the informative splash page battle albums to add a little touch. And I'm, and I'm Captain Weird over here. I'm the one who always wants more weird in the book, but I would much rather have a battle album than those two-page Day After Doomsday things. I am sorry. Bring them on back, man. So that, that was that's what stuck out to me. I was like, man, no wonder. 
and you did you did enjoy those albums yeah i love those and the uh the the the, the 3d diorama that i made the one yes sam glansman did i felt like that was a nice way to anchor the book to have some stuff that was just straight up historical and you know i i kind of missed that so when i saw this letter come in i'm like yeah man what did happen to those and then to find out joe was against it i was like ah well with uh, the letters page out of the way and my bittersweet feelings for battle albums churning, spinning around in my stomach, we'll move on to the second and final full-length story. Uh, and that one is called, appropriately enough, The Last Battle. It's uh, seven pages, script by our good buddy Jack Olek and art by favorite of the show, Alex Nino. So the synopsis goes a little something like this. The year... Is 2080. The dictator's army has defeated the last army opposing his rule. But as his advisors congratulate him on his victory, the dictator replies that the world will only be his when every man, woman, and child on earth lives by his law. It's one thing to win an empire, but another thing to hold it. Prisoners are executed, but revolts begin to pop up everywhere. There was no peace as long as there were those that would not surrender their dreams of freedom. Although his advisors recommend killing all the traitors, the dictator knows that you can't kill an idea with guns. The people must want him to be their ruler. But how? Revolts continue to be crushed as he searches for a solution. A war would rally the people to him, but a war against who? Mars! His advisors are puzzled. Mars is a dead planet. But who would know any differently if the people were told that Mars was about to attack them? War against a non-existent enemy. The people would build armaments and spaceships in their defense. Opposition would fade away. It was perfect. The propaganda campaign began immediately, advertising that large underground cities had been discovered on Mars and that they were building a huge space fleet with which to attack the Earth. As the threat to Earth grew, all thoughts of revolt and freedom vanished. Only Mother Earth mattered. The people of Earth rallied to the dictator's side, just as he predicted. They worshipped him, and he was content. The day finally came when the mightiest fleet of all time, thousands of ships, streaked into space to attack Mars. For a few hours, the fleet blasted the surface of the barren planet until the dictator ordered the firing to cease. He smiled as he turned away from the view screen. The war was over. Earth was truly his. But he didn't see the cracks that appeared on Mars's surface that revealed great gun ports. His officers saw them, but it was too late. There's a massive salvo of return fire, and the dictator dies. He'd forgotten a law far greater than any of his own. Those who live by the sword, die by the sword. And uh, Rich didn't find any killjoys, so we will have him lead off the CNC. It's generally pretty hard to find killjoy in a science fiction story. Yeah, I, I can point to any number of places throughout history where an enemy was manufactured or an incident was staged to give one country an excuse to invade another. Some are distressingly recent. History repeats, to coin a phrase. There's always going to be that guy for whom the ends justifies the means. And that guy has to be stood up to. This story irritated me a bit with the dictator's self-righteous attitude, which was no doubt the point. Nothing is ever as easy as it looks, Slick, but I don't know if you found that out before you were dead. Alex Nino has the perfect style for this futuristic tale. I love how he portrays cities and spaceships. Page five, panel three is the example that I'll use. Yeah, right on. As 
Rich just alluded to the message of this story is timeless, and unfortunately, it could also not be more timely. Some people out there might not want us to get too quote-unquote political or topical on the show, but hey, I really don't care about that. We are recording this episode shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine in 2022, and honestly, the whole state of affairs made me wonder if continuing to record a podcast about war comics was even the right thing to do right now. I'm still not entirely sure, but I will say that the theme of this tale helped me see some point to it, if at least for the moment. This isn't even the first war based on lies that I've seen in my lifetime, nor have I only seen such things initiated by countries other than my own, and I doubt it will be the last. So getting back to this story, it's tempting to feel a sense of satisfaction when the bad guy dies, but then you remember that he likely took everyone else out on the planet with him. Again, not a bad message to keep in mind, even if it will likely fall on deaf ears, as it always seems to, both in these pages and in the real world. Alex's art was, as Rich mentioned, perfect for this story, and Rich also stole my spotlight panel from me. I mean, yeah. that thing is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> How could you not? That, that thing is, it's downright Infantino-esque panel, which for me means I just freaking love it. And it's just, it's bold. It stands out there with minimal exposition. It's just, hey, check out this awesome, completely abstract tower of industry and military technology that plopped out of Alex's head. It's beautiful. So with that one being taken already, I'll point out just in general, Nino's incredible skill with varying page layouts on every single page of this story and leave it at that. I mean, when he's firing on all cylinders like he is on this story, you not only get individually cool drawings, but each page is cool to look at and you can see him being creative with timing and beats and the use of spaces. It's it's just fantastic. So, you know, I start out with the doom and gloom because I can't help myself, but a short Alex Nino story like this, written as well as it was, does a little bit to pull me out for a few minutes. So speaking of distractions, we are going to move on from the uh, story content of the issue and go and find our spotlighted ads. Ooh, I did the scary life-size monster ghost a while ago. It's back. So I'll do its accompanying twin this time. Horrifying glow-in-the-dark vampire bat. Only $1. It's life-size. Does all this at your command, even when you hide far away. Rattles windows with terrifying, loud, creepy sounds. Climbs, crawls, dances, jumps, floats in the air. Eyes glow eerily in the dark. It's life-size. Terrorize your friends on those dark, scary nights. Seems so alive, so realistic. It even fools other bats. Amazes, shocks everyone. Monster-size, authentic, natural colors. Hideous seven and a half inch fangs. Carry it with you. Operates anywhere, indoors or out. Horror outfit free with order. <laughs> I gotta wonder what that was. Everything to put on your own ghastly horror show. You get ugly, flying, creepy monster with popping eyes. Weird skull with moving, flashing eyes. Shrunken head with glow-in-the-dark eyes and long hair. And an extra surprise. A magnetic, slimy creature. <laughs> Satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. <sighs> How many times do we have to say that? If anyone actually bought this stuff, could you just let us know? <laughs> Oh my lord, love this stuff. Yeah, I, I need to see all of that. It's, you know, special bonus magnetic slimy creature. And as you said, the nebulously described horror outfit. I mean, is that a gimp suit? What is that? <laughs> 
I just, I got to know. So since, since Rich tackled that whole bunch of fun, I would say for me, this was a tough issue for picking ads. However, just somehow my eye was drawn. I ended up focusing on one image, one item in particular on the Johnson Smith Co. page right after the last battle story. And this is one of those giant pages of like order a bunch of gimmicks from us. You know, you got your hypnotic record, your x-ray goggles, whatever. But what I found was this pretty decent sized ad in the, in near the top of the page for the air car. New hovercraft rides on air. So here's what they say about this thing. New hovercraft glides like magic over floors, sidewalks, even water at your command with no visible means of support. Sleek car of the future uses principle of air suspension to go where you want. Powered by standard flashlight cells, not included. Push button on remote unit for precision control. Simply press switch and 11 inch beauty immediately rises and floats in any direction you wish. You wish. So and only $3.95. So that ad, I feel, takes you on a ride, so to speak. Originally, you're thinking, you can go anywhere you want. This must be like a full-size hovercraft. And by the end, it's 11 inches, and uh, you got a remote control for it. And, you know, it, it, by, by the time you get down, your expectations have been lowered quite a bit. <laughs> the disappointment is palpable. <laughs> it's, it's built right into the ad. I love it though, because it's it's perfect. It's like it starts out with these big letters and the picture of the, the thing next to it. But then you're like, wait a minute, flashlight cells? You got a remote control? Oh, it's 11 inches long. Oh, all right. <laughs> that's what they used to call D batteries back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because that's all you'd need to put, you know, in the house, the only thing you'd need to put them in would be the flashlights. So that was my spotlighted ad for the issue. You know, I'd still kind of like to have one of these things because I have two cats and it would be fun. <laughs> but uh, barring that huge mistake, <laughs> we'll move on to the section that uh, we like to call Got Any Last Words? I catch and cover two solid stories, good ads, good letters page. This was a very satisfying issue. Definitely have to say a top half the run. Too bad it'll be a month before we get to the next issue. Spoiler alert. It's almost like he knows what's coming next, people. But uh, I agree. Programmer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree. Even if I was a bit softer on the ads and you were, this is a fine example of what this series can be. A fully satisfying read from front to back. Uh, again, an archetypal issue that I would definitely hand to somebody who wanted to know what this series was like. So we got another good one here. And speaking of good things, we'll move on to our section called the Dead Letter Office, where we talk about communications we have received from listeners to the show or listeners of the show. And uh, at the top, I am supposed to remember to once again, beat you all over the head with mention of redbubble.com, where you can buy merchandise that has our logo on it. It's a lot of fun. And you'll uh, you'll be the only person uh, in, your, in state, your state, yeah, in your state probably <laughs> that has the, this uh, this very eye catching and unique merchandise. Because uh, if you order right now, you can be customer number three <laughs> at the time of this recording after Rich and I. And um, come on, people! Like it's even if, no matter what you think of the show, the logo is amazing. Bill Walco of the Hero Business, look him up. He did a great job on it. 
get this thing out there, people. Redbubble.com. Look for Weird Warriors podcast or Weird War 1983 and you'll find it. So over on Twitter, we had people stop by by the names of Luke Giaconetti from the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. We got Chris at BTO and Bat Books. Comics in the Golden Age. David Jackson, Professor Frenzy, Kirk Spencer uh, at Big Five Army on Twitter, and FP Glasgow, Chris Lydon, our buddy Billy D, Doc Strange, Billy D Licious on Twitter, Telltale Mind, Joseph McGregory, and that's a J O Z E F over on Twitter, uh, Dave Steele. And the Countdown in Dinosaur Valley, his uh, his current username, just funny to me. Dave Steele's from the Earth 2 podcast, big favorite of mine. We got my buddy Bill at Spy Vinyl on Twitter and Coffee and Comics, our buddy Clinton Robison. The Honorable Martin Gray has stopped by to say hey on Twitter. The Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, hosted by, or, you know, founded by our buddy Alan Middleton, Professor Alan. And let's see here. Now, actually, Alan on the Relatively Geeky Network had something to say. So a few comments on Twitter here. Alan says, excellent episode. I don't think you mentioned that one of the letter writers you featured, Carl Gafford, went on to do colors for many years in the comics industry. I said, thanks. And we didn't mention the coloring thing because we totally didn't realize who that was. I asked Alan, how many, K- how many hours of KP does that earn us? I mean, I'm busy, but I'm sure Rich can cover both of us, you know, for his country and all. And Martin Gray pipes up to say, shoot, professor, I wanted to mention that. And he mentions also, he says, I have seen a few episodes of One Step Beyond, though. It was slightly pre-Twilight Zone and claimed to be telling true life stories. So there we have it. Someone out there that listens to the show has seen the One Step Beyond show mentioned in that episode. Now over on Facebook, some people stopped by Kurt Matilla, Tim DeForest, Herschel Mimis, Billy D and David Steele. So a couple of repeat performers there. Now, Tim, again, keeps up his habit of giving us uh, some good comments and some good links to content here. Tim DeForest says, another great episode. One way to look at the story is to consider the theme of people being conned. The protagonist is a con man who used a con pretending to kill the American colonel to accomplish his mission, but discovers the Germans are pulling a con. And uh, I said, hey, this is pretty fancy critical analysis, Tim. Do you want Max's job? Sincerely, Max. And Rich says he'll send him a job app. So, you know, <laughs> good good news, people. You might soon uh, be dealing with somebody a little more well-informed than me. <laughs> I got the Which, yeah, like that's, that's a seriously high bar right there. Tim also cued us into, it's interesting that the hero is a con artist nicknamed The Actor. In 1967, there was a TV show called Garrison's Gorillas, and it was about a group of convicts recruited onto a commando team in exchange for pardons. So, you know, like kind of the suicide squad of comic book people. And he, he wonders like if it was a coincidence or if there was, you know, a little bit of lifting involved. And I'm pretty sure, you know, that lifting was far more common and shameless in the era we're covering in all media, but especially in comics. And then Tim follows up with a picture of Garrison's gorillas. And there's a character called the actor in that picture. So, you know, there had to be a little cross-pollination there, I think. And uh, there we go. And I just want to mention, again, Tim DeForest runs this awesome blog. It's about old-time radio and comics. It's at comicsradio.blogspot.com. I'm a follower. It's it's just a lot of fun. He, he posts a lot of cool stuff over there, including whole episodes of old-time radio. So 
With that all out of the way, we're going to move on to the Gmail inbox. That's weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com. And we got our uh, our buddy Luke Giaconetti wrote in. And uh, I want uh, Rich to take a turn reading the letter here since I've been talking for a bit. We do seem to go on stretches, don't we, where I do a lot of talking. You do a lot of talking. <laughs> okay, Luke Giaconetti says, Max and Rich, hey, weird warriors. Just wanted to drop you a quick line to say that I've been really digging the show recently. I was traveling for January and had gotten behind, so getting caught up now. Wanted to also give you guys a shout out for covering the first issue of the Vertigo Weird War Tales miniseries. I think I have one issue of these series in my collection, but I have not really seen it out in the wild. I was reading and collecting comics when the series came out, including starting to get into Vertigo or Sandman and Sandman Mystery Theater. Unfortunately, I had not yet discovered war comics at the time, so if I read about the series or or if I read about the series or saw any promotion for it, it went right over my head. So now it remains on the punch list, waiting to be found in some bin at some show in the vague and indeterminate future. The issue itself sounded wonderful, really leaning into the mature reader's tag. Tunnel Rat especially sounds chilling and creepy, a perfect mix of war and horror. Yeah, you're telling me, pal. Uh, (laughs) Vertigo was a great imprint back in the day. While it was disappointing when DC eventually dismantled it, by that point, it was frankly a a shadow of its former self. At least those back issues, including weird war tales, live on. Thanks again, fellas. Looking forward to all the weird stuff coming out of the show. Make war no more. Luke Jacanetti, Earth Destructive Directive, co-host Baltimore startling monster horror tales of terror co-host get back to the wrestling yeah with with luke talking about vertigo becoming a shadow of its former self by the end i couldn't agree more it's just like there i was writing back to him and i was saying there were just so many options out there at the time for creator-owned series that could be a little more edgy and mature and all that with much better deals on that whole creator-owned end of things because the vertigo deal wasn't quite as creator-owned as you'd think People were, you know, creatives, I think, creators were getting a little sick of it. So by the time they were winding Vertigo down, people were already gone to like Dark Horse and Image and all, you know, all these other publishers. Even Karen Berger herself, who founded Vertigo, had formed her own publishing output, Berger Books. So writing was on the wall. By the time they were taking the furniture out of the Vertigo imprint, you, you could already find that kind of content in other places. So next email we got was from our buddy, Billy D. And uh, he just stops by to say some nice things. He says, hey guys, just wanted to drop by and let you know how good I think the show is doing. Every episode is consistent, fun, and informative. The two of you have good synergy, and I hope that means there will be a lot more Weird War Tales stories I can hear about on your show. Thanks for doing what you do, Doc Strange. Next, we got an email from our buddy, Jason Zeller, founder of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award. He writes in to say, Hi, gentlemen. This was a really solid issue for me. The cover was pretty decent, and it actually related to something that happened in the book. The hulking soldiers riding the motorcycles looked like adults trying to ride a kid's bike, similar to the Goonies movie when the older brother tried to ride the little girl's bike. Now, Jason always has a reference to some other piece of media, and sometimes it's a Twilight Zone episode I've never seen, but the last time and this time, he hits on something that I had completely forgotten about. And then when he mentions it, it pops right into my head. So that was good. That scene from the Goonies when the older brother said, I would never have thought of that back when we were recording. So he goes on to say, this was a pretty good story. Probably one of the best I have read in Weird War Tales so far. I did, however, have to suspend my belief a few times. 
Yeah, a few. Yeah, yeah. Because he's he's talking about the blue bold story, people. You know, with it's you you'll get it here. Uh, He says one of the things that got me early on was that the U.S. soldiers kept getting caught unaware of the multiple motorcycles bearing down on them. Good point. Because motorcycles are quiet. Very quiet. Yeah, you know, voodoo motorcycles, but but then also robots. So he says the Blue Bolt Platoon was a pretty unique squad and is tough to say three times fast. It was a good mystery trying to solve who they were and how the major kept coming back to life. Seeing Harry the actor Nielsen turn into a hero despite himself was a nice character arc, and actually finding out that it was Nazi robot soldiers was a nice reveal. At some point, though, I am just along for the ride as this story takes so many twists and turns. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, indeed. That that story was completely crazy. Overall, I did enjoy the story, and it definitely held my attention all the way through. Once again, I like Joe Orlando asking readers if they like the book-length stories or shorter stories. For myself... I do like the occasional book-length story arc, but I always associate Weird War Tales with having memorable short stories that are easy to get into and leave you wanting more. And Jason says, he's, he's finally caught up to, uh, he says, aw, shucks, guys. Thanks for naming the Binge Listener Award after me. I will wear it like a badge of honor. This show is a joy to listen to, and it is great rereading one of my favorite comic series of all time. Until next time, Max and Rich, Jason. Now, he sent a second message right away and he said one last thing i forgot to mention was the behind the scenes at the dc comics world there was a very nice blurb about the legion of superheroes and their publishing history by paul levitz no less and he says it was great to see the legion get this in-house promotion from dc this is one of my favorite comics of all time and this era up through the great darkness was some of the best years of the series for me and I had to write back to Jason about that because I am a huge Legion of Superheroes fan. And this era he's talking about is also that those are my golden years of the Legion. So it was cool to find out that Jason's a fellow Legion of Superheroes nerd. Long live the Legion, baby. Got to respect that. So Dan Brown, our buddy Pax Sells, sent a message over on Twitter. We actually got a Twitter message to talk about here. And he says, I heard you guys on the Checkered Pass podcast from back in October. Sounded like you were all having a good time. Thanks for the fun listen. I said thanks and it was a blast. Those guys are the best and such patient and gracious hosts to have us hooligans on. So all that's true. (laughs) And he said he just recently added them to the list of don't miss shows. They're very funny stuff. I said they are good. And as I said, they are so good. And they just did a Captain Hunter episode. Now, Dan says, yes, that's the entrance to the rabbit hole that got me to the one you and Rich did. Good stuff. So I dig that Dan discovered the checkered past when he saw someone did a Captain Hunter episode. And then he discovered we were lurking somewhere on their feet. I thought that was cool. Like, surprise! You can't get away from us. We're everywhere. (laughs) That's a heck of a dead letter office. A lot of activity going on. And, you know, with people saying such nice things about the show and and everything, it just really drives home to me that this thing that I kind of started off as a lark in my head, just so Rich and I could have an excuse to talk about comics every once in a while in person, you know, and get that back on track, get that routine going again, has become something that other people actually like to listen to. I can't say it enough times. Maybe I'll stop someday, but I doubt it. That this blows it yeah, this this blows me away, you know? Like uh, and I know you doubt it too. I say I say everything. 
everything all the time forever. I like to repeat myself, but yeah, um, it, it's just, it's, it is appreciated. And, uh, you know, now not only do I have Rich who will never let me quit until we finish the show, but I got people out there who actually want to hear us do this. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't like this, this feeling of pressure. I don't like the responsibility. It doesn't sit well. But anyway, having that all out of the way here, we're going to let Rich hit you guys with, since nobody's quitting anytime soon, the teaser for the next episode. The time has come, dear listeners. It's time for another special mission, but not just any special mission. Oh, no. It's time for us to finally visit Big Five Country. And what better place for us to start? than with the title whose main character is the very definition of weird war. Yes, indeed. You guessed it. The Haunted Tank. GI Combat number 112. Joe Kubert draws General Jeb Stewart defending his namesake against an assault by Attila the Hun. And there's a World War I aviation story with a boatload of killjoy on page one. Do we even have to tell you to be here? Yeah. Can you tell Rich is excited, people? That wasn't your usual bunch of cryptic teaser. <laughs> We're heading into some of his favorite territory, and I can't wait. So he's already sent the script to me, as you could possibly as you probably imagine, and uh, it, it's going to be a fun one, people. So in all heartfelt seriousness, of course, with what is going on in Ukraine right now, Let's just say this has been the Weird Warriors podcast. We're the Weird Warriors, and we promise to make war no more.